If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Oh, good morning, everyone. We're in for a treat this morning. I'm sure everyone is sick of the news from uh, Waitangi, but it's uh, a time for reflection, but with some serious consideration from people who know what we're talking about. And no one, no one is better placed to discuss the treaty, its modern reincarnation, if you like, and what we're witnessing than the Honourable Dr. Michael Bassett, who was a Member of Parliament, who was a Minister, is a distinguished historian, and who was around when the reincarnation or when the treaty was reinvented. He has seen it all. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Rodney. It's so lovely to have you here this morning to discuss this weighty topic because the news is leaving us a bit bereft of understanding, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've had a weekend uh, or several days of uh, discourteous, grossly discourteous behaviour. Politicians expected to turn themselves into Aunt Sally's and, uh, uh, you know, we have stones thrown at them up at uh, Waitangi. Um, I'm talking in uh, uh, not in literal terms. And, um, uh, you know, we need to think back on what Waitangi Day was meant to be. Can I take, can I interrupt you there? Because listeners possibly don't know this, but you were a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young MP. Way back when Norman Kirk became Prime Minister. That's right. I was elected in 1972. Oh, my goodness, Michael. And so you were there, and Norman Kirk famously went to Waitangi, that iconic image of walking onto the Marae with that young boy holding his hand, captured the nation it's still a powerful picture i don't even know what i wonder who i've often wondered who that little boy was i can never discover it he made february the 6th new zealand day and i think a public holiday at the same time your view back then you could not have imagined where we have arrived We've arrived at exactly what Norman Kirk didn't want to happen. Uh, And the uh, initial legislation was for New Zealand Day. And that began in 1974 with the first public holiday. Kirk uh, said that uh, the Waitangi Treaty was for everybody. It was to reflect the interests of all New Zealanders, no matter their racial background or their cultural background. 
And that was celebrated uh, in front of the Queen on the uh, apron at in front of the Treaty House uh, on 6 February 1974, where there was a multicultural uh, series of events. Uh, I remember the Yugoslav community because I represented a Western uh, Auckland uh, area. And I remember um, Dutch and all the others, as well as Māori. I mean, Māori were pretty central to the whole thing, but by no means was it unique. Well, it was Muldoon who decided that uh, in 1976, he would revert to Waitangi Day uh, and drop the uh, the multicultural aspect of uh, our national day. And, of course, what happened was that it became Grizzlers Day. And so the Grizzlers stepped up in the late uh, 70s and they became really quite belligerent in the early uh, 1980s. Some might remember Sir David Beatty, one of our better best, uh, one of our best uh, uh, governors general, being insulted on the Marae uh, in, I think it was 1982-3. And um, anyway, the incoming Longy government in 1984 and early 1985 decided we weren't going to be Aunt Sally's anymore. And so nobody, uh, the Prime Minister and um, ministers, didn't go to Waitangi. Uh, instead, uh, Waitangi celebrations uh, were held in various parts of the country. Geoffrey Palmer went out to O'Kane's Bay out of Christchurch. Stan Roger went somewhere in Dunedin. Um, and the rest of us, um, by and large, uh, were in the beehive in the um, dining room, the great big uh, room that you'll remember. And um, Mari came and uh, we had uh, some talks and speeches and so on. And we just didn't go to Waitangi to have things, have abuse hurled at us. Well, slowly we phased back into uh, going to Waitangi, but only some. I was Minister of Internal Affairs in 1988, 89, 90. And uh, because 1990 was uh, the 150th anniversary of the signing of the treaty, and I was chairman of the uh, 1990 commission, uh, we organised for uh, the arrival of the Queen again uh, at Waitangi in 1990. Well, it was a rather different show to uh, the events that she had uh, enjoyed in 1974. In 1990, I watched uh, uh, one of the crazy Harawira women throw a wet T-shirt at the Queen as she was departing the um, uh, treaty grounds. And it was all back on again, um, uh, the politicians, um, Aunt Sally's once more. Well, there have been various acts of rebellion by the uh, ministers since then Hel and other politicians. Helen Clark, you'll remember, was abused. I think it was 1998, uh, 99, refused speaking rights before she became prime minister. 
and um, and so on. So it's been an upside, upside down uh, kind of an affair, the Waitangi uh, celebrations, if that's what they are. Uh, and uh, frankly, I think it's about time for the politicians to say, look, enough of this Aunt Sally nonsense. Uh, we'll take a breather for a while. You sort out your rubbish. Uh, to use Winston Peters' um, uh, wonderful line the other day, cut the crap and get educated. <laughs> once once they've done that, uh, we'll then, come back. then we'll come back. Tell me, you keep using that phrase and it's my ignorance. Aunt Sally, what's that a reference to? Oh, it's an old saying um, where where people uh, let themselves have sticks and stones and ball mm. things thrown at them. You sit there and uh, it's a bit like a coconut shy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I, sorry. The moment you said that, I had a picture a picture of Chris Luxon's head. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That is so funny. Um, Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's a coconut shy. Ah, oh, you must weep, Michael, going back to 1974 and thinking about mm -hmm. how we had a wonderful country and we were going to make it better. Well, that was certainly Kirk's intention, and it was one of his. It was his last uh, appearance at Waitangi, the event that you referred to earlier of the picking the hand of the little Maori boy and taking him up to the stage had been the previous year, mm. 1973. 74 was the multicultural display mm. and in front of the Queen. She was over for the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch and uh, it was a wonderful day. I'll still, I can still remember the uh, the show uh, but sad not not to be um, enjoyed. And, of course, one of the reasons why people say we can't have the 6th of February as our national day is because it's been allowed to be turned into Grizzlers Day. Hmm. Did you like Norman Kirk? Yes, I did. He, he was hard to sort of get to know uh, I remember being introduced to him and um, uh, some guy, stand, a union secretary standing next to him said, um, you better watch this guy, referring to me. He's had an education. Oh. And uh, in those days, the unions <laughs> were a bit scared of them. And, um, Rightly so, as it happened. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, got, I ended up getting on well with him and I was yeah. really chair in Auckland uh, of the party and uh, uh, we we got along fine. Mm. Was he a great Prime Minister? Hard to tell really because he's only there for 20 months. Is uh, that all? Oh yeah. my goodness, isn't that funny? Yeah. I thought he, you know, close to three years. He oh. died the end of August 1974. He's not, yes, he's about 21 months I think he was Prime oh, Minister. My goodness. My goodness, isn't that amazing? Um, you served on the Waitangi Tribunal. Yes. Which I neglected to mention uh, in my introduction of you. How many years? Uh, Ten. 1994 to 2004. When you went onto the tribunal, 
did you go onto the tribunal with high hopes or with a bit of a sigh? Well, it came out of out of um, left field, really. I was teaching in Canada and I got a ring from John Luxton, who was Minister of Maori Affairs. And he said, look, there was a shamozzle in cabinet this morning. Um, the, I proposed, I forget who it was, uh, and the cabinet said, oh, no, not him. And um, so uh, I said, well, if it's not him, who else? And some rascal piped up and said, well, Michael Bassett uh, uh, might uh, do the trick. Ah, ah, okay. So anyway, I went on and I initially was invited to uh, help with the writing of a lot of reports. At least that's what I was told I would be doing. And since writing is something that I do with some ease, um, I thought, okay. But when I got there to the tribunal, it became clear to me that the chairman of the day didn't want me writing reports and um, was a little bit sceptical about uh, whether I would be, um, you know, uh, a compliant um, uh, person. And um, so I had to wait for a while before a couple of cases came up and uh, they were interesting cases one of them was a uh, involved um, kiwi fruit sellers who were uh no, that's right fighting well, the monopoly yep that's right well they they um the maori kiwi fruit sellers argued that they shouldn't have to uh be bound to the monopoly uh, that they had a treaty right. And uh, I ended up by writing the report for that one. Um, and uh, what became clear was that the only area where the Kiwi Fruit uh, uh, Marketing Authority uh, overseas didn't insist on um, a monopoly uh, right was for sales to Australia. And that was the only place where the Maori kiwi fruit uh, sellers had been selling overseas and claimed that their um, sales were impeded by the new rules. And so the case was thrown out. Uh, and my report, I think, was the first one that uh, um, was ever thrown out by the tribunal. I then went on to a couple of others, uh, the Kaipara case, the Tauranga case, and uh, oh, I heard another couple of smaller ones, um, all interesting, but um, it was not what I would call rigorous not. study. Uh, unfortunately, the tribunal uh, makeup was of people who just were predisposed to believe that whatever Mari wanted, they could have. Mm. As a historian, too you must struggle and we can understand this that there is some legitimacy in oral history in the sense that all history starts off orally um including homer but when you're a historian you're wanting to sift and find the facts and we now have this oral history which is 
almost made sacred, which for his and a historian um, must be extremely problematic, Michael. Well, yes, sometimes, although, of course, any historian worthy of his uh, crust will go and talk to people about things. Uh, when I did my book on the prime ministers, uh, I spoke to all of them and uh, I spoke to many people around them. Uh, I needed oral input in order mm. to get the story credible. Um, it's a mixed uh, thing, really, oral history. It, it has its place. But uh, how do you treat a claim of occupation or travel or use of a resource from hundreds of years ago? Yeah, that's where it gets tricky. Yes. That's where it really gets tricky. We've also got this interesting thing too, haven't we, where we have grafted, like it or not, into our culture a sort of spiritual and religious belief that is now given a, a predominance. So you have spirits and monsters and all the rest of it. And I struggle with this because I like to respect people's beliefs. But I sort of draw the line when they impact public policy and when they impact uh, my own going about my business. Like like you can't put the road here because there's a tanifar at that corner. Yes. yes. Yes, it becomes a problem, doesn't it? And yes. stretching your your belief in uh, uh, something to uh, accept that. Yes, I had the interesting experience of living for a while in the Waikato, and all these Maori carvings appeared on the bridges and highways. And maybe this is just because of the baggage that a lot of this stuff now carries they irked me enormously because i knew they'd been done at our expense and i thought well maybe i would appreciate them more if i understood their significance i literally spent a year writing off happily to the new zealand transport authority <coughs> asking about these huge and in a way quite impressive carvings and structures it finally transpired that i weren't to know what they were and not only that new zealand transport authority didn't know what they were <clears throat> because they couldn't be what's that word that you have in a tribal society they weren't they weren't sufficiently high up the tribal hierarchy to be Privy to the privy to the witch doctor's special <laughs> knowledge, and this this at my at that time I thought we are truly lost, yeah. and this is a struggle, isn't it? We're living in a all the benefits of a Western rational system, and again we are being caught up with this unquestioning. 
view of how the world should go, which is absolutely incompatible with a democratic way of life. Quite. And uh, really, in the end, uh, you're either one thing or the other. Yes. And uh, trying to enforce tribal mysticism uh, in today's day and age is about as difficult as trying to ram um, religious concepts down everybody else's throat. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you have a democratic society, people are free to make their choice Mm. and uh, Mm. they can have religion or they don't have religion. That's Mm. their right. Well, we we Christians are very understanding of that. And um, we don't want to enforce it. We want you to discover it. And, of course, again, that is something rooted uh, in our history. Tell me, what's your prognosis, Michael? You've been there right through the modern era. You've witnessed, oh, first up, when you were growing up, when you are at school, I actually have a memory, not of the time, bit of your history that you were Dilworth boy? I was, yes, yes. So when you're at Dilworth, what role did the treaty play? None whatsoever. Had you I heard of it? I think I'd heard of it. I was quite good at history. And uh and moreover I was in an avid reader of the newspaper from a very mm. small uh boy. And um I knew of the treaty, but there was no 6th of February um, special function or anything like that. It just didn't exist um, in the late 40s, early 50s. It just wasn't there. So um, it's a very, very modern thing, isn't it? You know, going back to Norman Kirk. Yes. And then this reinterpretation of it. What is your prognosis for the day, treaty, and race relations in New Zealand? Well, I think that the, I mean, if the politicians are wise, they will pull back from being Aunt Sally's. That will, they'll be shouting and roaring and going on. And the media will whip it all up because uh, the last few days has been a media-inspired circus. Let's be clear about that. Um, And the media circus will continue, I suppose, because they think that there are readers of their papers and listeners to their programmes if they go on uh, talking about uh, the wicked politicians. But I wouldn't uh, favour... Uh, the politicians remaining Aunt Sally's. I mean, I think it's just silly. Give them a breather for a time. The future of Māori, which is really what's at stake here, is uh, a matter of considerable concern, it seems to me. I mean, we're in a situation where about 40% of Māori society is in a dreadful state. Um, I mean, you've only got to look at uh, truancy, uh, at uh, welfare, at um, family violence, at crime, 
all of those things all connected and all of them uh, making uh, many aspects of Māori society in terrible shape. But it's something that Māori themselves and particularly the tribal leaders will not front up to. I mean, you didn't hear any of those issues discussed in Whitey. No. And yet they are what is holding Māori back. Not David Seymour or um, the treaty principle bill or um, uh, the setting up of uh, charter schools or anything like that. What is actually holding Māori back is really basically welfare and all of the things that flow on from easy welfare, just as our old Sarapurana Nata predicted uh, in the 20s and the 30s, it's come to roost. Uh, when Nata advised um, uh, Savage's government uh, not to pay unemployment benefits in cash, to work on providing jobs, but don't pay cash, was the message uh, he gave. He knew a thing or two. And what we he do now is that uh, access to easy cash is the single biggest problem which confronts Māori and which enabled so many people to come out of the blue and uh, go up to Waitangi. Uh, they weren't working. So Aparana Nata, on our $50 bill, a great man when you read of Indeed. him. Where did he come from? Where did this true leader and visionary come from? That is in itself a very interesting question because uh, the biography of him written by Rangi Walker neglects to mention that one of his ancestors was Indian. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, one of his ancestors came from Goa in, uh, in India. And marvellous. <clears throat> yes. Well, he told, he, he didn't make any secret of that fact. Uh, anybody who wanted to know, uh, Nata told. His home in Ruatoria was called the Bungalow, which, of course, is an Indian uh, architectural thing. And um, he told Peter Tapsell, who was a colleague of mine and a later member for Eastern Māori, uh, about uh, his Goan ancestry. Uh, but... Um, and it, it's been acknowledged by uh, uh, others. Uh, he, he grew up and went to, uh, had a good education. He was obviously very bright. Went to uh, Victoria University. and Did he uh, go through Teati College? Yes, I think so. I think so, yes. I think so. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. I did read and I reviewed uh, Rangi Walker's book, um, but I can't remember all the detail. Victoria University? Victoria University did an um, MA, I think, and then a law degree, and uh, he's the first Māori graduate. Uh, followed, of course, fairly quickly thereafter by Peter Buck to Rangi Haroa, and then the Maui Pomari and uh, other uh, others of the original Maori leaders of the turn of the century. And again, you shudder, don't you? You shudder to imagine 
here we are enjoying the fruits of our ancestors sacrifice work vision thinking what they did for the future that we're enjoying and here we are sort of trampling on their gift oh, absolutely i mean we, the one thing that nata preached all the time was get an education that you, you we are capable of beating the white man at his own game yes if we only apply it ourselves he was not a victim no not at all and um uh, you look at that mob at Waitangi and ask yourself mm. how far have we still got to go mm. where is a nata there's been been nobody remotely in that category mm. uh for 60 70 80 years none i uh like looking at the tv and said archives of the old new zealand film commission shots and there was a great one uh that was pictures of the maori battalion it was a piece on um narumu the the vc oh, yes. posthumous and you saw those maori soldiers being filmed first of all as young men uh off to war and coming home and then being interviewed by weary gardner i think it would be in the 80s maybe mm. the 70s mm -hmm. fine upright well-spoken men gentlemen honorable trustworthy they were so wonderful and again you look at the rebel and you think oh my god and it's like you say welfareism tell me is in your judgment is Putting aside the politics, is David Seymour's Treaty Principles Bill a good way to proceed, or is it misguided? And I'll, I'll get—I'll just frame it a bit from my perspective. I have not studied it. I love the fact that we're getting to debate this whole concept of Treaty Principles and where they come from. But I'm funny enough, a little worried, and I think, well, maybe this is just an expedient. But I'm a little worried about the concept of a referendum deciding mm. such a thing. Well, my reaction to that is that uh, uh, while the referendum would cement in uh, an understanding of the principles of the treaty, getting there would be destructive big time mm -hmm. look what happened to the referendum in australia uh the government uh, decided to push a referendum they pushed and pushed like fury uh the referendum was turned down basically by their own supporters and the government that tried to do all of this fell behind big time in the polls frankly pushing for a referendum is not a guarantee of uh, political success. Uh, and it, it, with the legislation, the difficulty with that is that um, it can always be changed. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there wouldn't be anything that would stop the next government uh, doing a Seymour Principles of the Treaty Amendment Bill. And so you haven't actually achieved anything in particular uh, or anything long term. Uh, but I think the only thing that a government can do is what it can do while it's got its own mandate, yes. and that is to act according to your interpretation, our interpretation, its interpretation of the principles of the treaty in operation now. Um, there is a problem, of course, because the, uh, there have been some terrible appointments to the courts in recent years, and you can't be sure that no. you won't get some crackpot judge no. uh, uh, make a ruling that, um, you know, is is far-fetched. And um, so you've got to live with that. But mm. a government has to be prepared to bark at bad judgments. Mm. No point in just simply living with them. Uh, and we we are inclined to say that uh, the politicians make the laws, the judges decide them, and their word is final bullshit. Uh, if they make mistakes or do something silly, uh, a government has to, which is the one which is answerable to the people, has to be prepared to call them out. Mm. Now, I've had this conversation with you before. Uh, some time ago, but uh, listeners may not have heard it because I was on a smaller station then, and it was such an insight for me, and it was the entire history and origins of the principles of the treaty. And I was wondering, again, because you were there, if you could walk us through where well, these I principles originate and come from. I can't, actually, because it's so nebulous. Mm. Uh, the first mention of the principles of the treaty were in, I think it was the Labour Party's manifesto in 1972, and we were going to introduce uh, a, a Waitangi uh, tribunal which would deal with the principles of the treaty as they applied to day-to-day -day living. Well, no effort was made when the bill came in 1974-5 to define what those principles were. In fact, it was left in large measure to the tribunal to uh, sort of thrash that issue out. And nor was any effort made in 1985-86 when um, uh, we decided to uh, say in the SOE bill that went through um, nothing in this Act will detract from the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. And, but again, they weren't defined. Well, the government got rather uneasy about all of this, and about 1988-89, David Longy and um, Geoffrey Palmer did make an effort to identify some principles of the Treaty and cabinet approved them, but we didn't put them into law. And consequently, the whole effort passed away without 
uh, nobody ever knew them. In fact, I'm, I would be gasping to try and find where my copy of those principles actually uh, wow. is. And um, it, it, we've never made an effort since to try and define what the principles are. So in effect, we're flying blind, but this is the dangerous part. It's an invitation to radicals, and remember this, one or two appalling law schools in this country, and uh, they're inventing stuff all the time uh, and playing around with the treaty. And even the Waitangi Tribunal itself now has uh, decided um, it hasn't got enough work to do, and it's decided to try to draw up a constitution. And uh, this is what uh, uh, Shane Jones was sounding off about the other day. Mm. Uh, Quite right. It, yes, it's nothing to do with the tribunal, uh, but uh, they are not only going to try and work out uh, what... Uh, the constitution will be, but presumably redefine the principles of the treaty and decide who might be invited along to uh, help with the drawing up of the of the bill. I mean, get lost is my reaction, and uh, it should be the reaction of the governments. The concepts of partnership and co-governance has what set off alarm bells politically and through the electorate and has obviously led to a major flashpoint with the previous government being so far down the track of co-governance everywhere you look these aren't the principles of treaty of the treaty however you look at it are they there's no 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 i mean even the word partnership Everybody keeps saying that that's what Lord Cook uh, said in his 1987 uh, uh, judgment. He didn't. He said that the uh, relationship between um, Māori and um, uh, non-Māori was akin to a partnership. He's obviously looking for something to uh, compare uh, the, the obligation to work together uh, and, um, of course, partnership becomes the defined statement in the minds of uh, all sorts of um, treaty ratbags. And, of course, now we have this absurd thing where the media repeat this ad nauseum without critical comment that somehow David Seymour is rewriting the treaty, <laughs> <laughs> which is... Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's it's absurd, but uh, all he's really doing is is picking the key items out of the treaty and saying, uh, "This we is can live what, with this. This is what we will live with." Mm. And it's, I mean, you you I understand what David's trying to do. He he just wants to put a stop to this ever inven, inventive mm. uh, gravy train 
that is moving on with uh, Maori uh, trying to devise well, a handful of Maori um, underemployed academics and Waitangi tribunal staff wanting to uh, um, imagine some new bit of gravy train uh, delivery that uh, um, they fancy. Going back to that 1987 decision and Robin Cook, that was significant. What was it about and what did it determine? Well, the government had decided in the SOE Act, and I think it was also with its plans in particular for the forestry corp that was going to be set up, that uh, it would sell the forests and uh, Māori jumped in, uh, Graham Latimer, the head of the Māori Council at the time, jumped in and said, hang on a minute, um, the land underneath the forests is in dispute, the ownership of it. And so the government, the, the Robin Cook um, said, in effect, uh, that um, there couldn't be sale of the forests until such time as the ownership of the land underneath the forests had been determined. That produced an interesting uh, result. <clears throat> Indeed, the sale of the forests couldn't start yet. Um, the money from the, uh, this, the sale of the trees could proceed but not the sale of the land underneath. And uh, what happened was that um, a Crown Forestry Rental Trust was set up and um, a portion of the sale of the trees went into this trust and it financed research to help determine who owned the land underneath the trees. And uh, so when I went on to the tribunal, I was astounded at the huge amount of research that was being churned out all the time. And it was being funded by the Crown Forestry Rental Trust, which is still in business, I see, and is still financing uh, risk. Millions and millions and millions quite, of dollars. Quite, quite well. I mean, you know, it, whenever there's a problem, follow the money trail. And the money trail goes back to the Ground Forestry Rental Trust. And if the government had any sense, it would actually change the terms of the Ground Forestry Rental Trust and uh, put the money into uh, more profitable things than uh, uh, endless research, particularly now that the ownership, uh, the historical claim part of the tribunal is long since finished. Mm. I have always been a person interested in uh, physical science, biology, and latterly economics. And now I found myself interested in history. And sociological and collectivist mumbo jumbo has always had me running a mile because, you know, my it makes my lids heavy <laughs> and its profundity of language. But last year, I realized all this was biting me on my proverbial backside. And I wrapped a cold 
wet towel around my head and spent some months reading critical theory and its history, where it came from and how we understand it. And I now understand a little bit of where this madness, what this madness is, because I just used to see that these people are insane. I didn't realize that there was a mad philosophical underpinning underneath it, that once you saw that, there was a source of this madness, because I could never understand how people were mad in the same way. Now, you're uh, originally a man of the left. You've studied the left. You have been with the left. In fact, I think your PhD was on uh, socialism. It was. Um, this is where it comes from in our universities, isn't it? Quite a lot, but yes. Yes, indeed. Tell me how you see it working. You've been a university lecturer. How you see it working in the universities and then being repeated by the journalists who travel through these sociological courses at university and how we have these young Maori beginning in the 70s who were radicalized at university. How do you see that explaining where we are and um, these bad ideas, if you will, and poured it into our university system and filling up young people's minds? I notice it, by the way, and you'll have it with your grandchildren, I'm sure with, of course, teachers who have been through the same university system and they're inculcating quite oblivious to where their ideas have come from and unable to critique or receive criticism of their own ideas and they're literally propagandizing our school children at primary school with this stuff. Have you you have observed that in our university system down through to us to our journalists to our activists to our MPs? Yes, yes, um, it's it's true. Um, the universities in my day were more mixed than they seem to be now, in the sense that there were some quite conservative folk around and uh, uh, on the staff and uh, some lefties. I, most of my teachers were uh, of the left uh, and clearly influenced me, as did uh, my family and um, my friends of the family. Um, the university that I taught in was, uh, as I say, a, a more mixed affair. Uh, I was involved uh, early in the piece in uh, the fight against New Zealand committing forces to Vietnam. And uh, so I got to know most members of the staff. Only a handful of them would have been real lefties and opposed to uh, New Zealand being involved in Vietnam. Um, but today, I think it is that the left is associated more with an open checkbook 
and uh, all of them want more money, uh, and they uh, have adopted a sort of a policy of uh, believing that the left is more likely to uh, give them the bed of roses that they'd like. And so that's the prevailing uh, policy that uh, they talk about to their students. I'm bound to say that some aspects of history have faded in the classroom. I think one of the worst things that the universities did in the 70s, 80s, I think it was, was argued that no longer was the compulsory retirement uh, at 65. When I joined the staff, you retired on the 1st of January, the year after you turned 65. Mm -hmm. I they, did not know that. They changed that and said that under the human rights legislation, uh, you know, age should not necessarily count. And if you look around the universities, they're absolutely full of usually the weak ones who have just got a, an easy job and have stayed on uh, and um, some, peddling old left views, many of them, that, uh, uh, you know, got whiskers on them. Mm. And uh, I think the universities are in very bad shape in this country. It's desperately necessary uh, that there be a revision. They should go back to some kind of compulsory retirement age. Mm -hmm. What happens is when you let oldies stay on the staff, young people uh, with ability can't get jobs. Mm. So they go off and do other uh, um, fields. We tend to see uh, youth as through rose-tinted glasses, but I recall being a lefty because I was a, went through high school and attended university. But I recall that the lefties at university and indeed there are some lefties, I'm thinking of Chris Trotter, mm. who are open to debate, who are open to dialogue, who are open to criticism and arguing their case. They might be dogmatic <laughs> because they're lefties, right? But we're seeing a whole new thing, and this ties into the treaty and the principles because we're seeing a whole new thing, again, critical theory, where truth, facts, and argument don't play a part. Truth is something which uh, uh, historians uh, try to um, uh, ensure uh, they establish. But um, argument is, of course, natural to, uh, to us all. Uh, yeah. But we don't see, we don't see the media or a national discussion about saying, well, where do these principles come from? What are they? Let's have a discussion. Let's try and understand what David Seymour's trying to say or do. We just have these Willie Jackson, quick Hanehawera, quick one-liners. Oh, he's trying to rewrite the treaty. He's trying to push Mary down or what have you, right? 
And half the journalists are the same. I mean, Mike. Half. <laughs> yes, nearly all of them. Truth is, I mean, Mikey Sherman and Tianua Hura Hanganui uh, of TV One are both just agitators. Yes. And they're not really journalists, they're agitators. And uh, they want the government to fail. They want Māori to succeed. Anything that Māori want is good for them. And um, uh, I'm blessed if I can see how the Minister for Broadcasting can continue to tolerate TV1 operating the way it is. But uh, there we are. Well, it's become not just an enemy of the government, but an enemy of democracy hmm. because there was no honeymoon period. Oh. I love the idea of a media hounding a government, criticising a government, but what we've had is a media that was fawning over the previous government, doing a very poor job uh, on the opposition, in terms of informing us of what they were on about. And day one, attacking this government, misinterpreting and misinforming us about their intentions and their policies, you can't have that. You absolutely can't have that. that, that this is like, um, this makes it impossible, I think, to govern. Well, it's just another aspect of the slow decline of standards in New Zealand. Mm. which is something really terrible. I mean, the educational system at every level is in trouble. Uh, the universities are in trouble. Um, uh, why would the media be any better? Uh, and in the end, you just hope that a government will demand that decent standards be observed. But will they? I'm a little pessimistic uh, about uh, progress. Well, I'm a little pessimistic because it's taken such a deep root. And, of course, it requires an apparanata or a, a leader of some backbone, a Roger Douglas, um, a Robert Muldoon, who stands up and, rightly or wrongly, are prepared to be counted and you have a sense with Mr. Luxon, he's not that prime minister. He's a typical New Zealand prime minister, which is consensus and steady as she goes. Mm. Um, um, and we have fostered through our education and school system a view that's antithetical um, to living in a free and prosperous society. Mm. I want to finish just on a, a philosophical note, Michael, if I may. I'm always troubled by how we we see things in collectivist terms or tribal terms or group terms. And we understand normally what you're saying when you say Maori statistics and Chinese statistics and European statistics. And this is important data. But the locus of decision and responsibility 
is always the individual. Hmm. And we find now that we're in a place where we have created this abstraction and made it real. So Maori think this, Maori are this, non-Maori think this, non-Maori are that. And all the time, we're racializing every discussion and every debate and every point of view and slicing and dicing the country. When you and I know we're a homogenous, even the great Aparananata, the great Maori leader, was part India, which is a great story, right? We're, we're living together. We have, we've got this wonderful interracial connection that we don't see in other race-torn countries like United States of America. We are, and we grew up ultimately with this brilliant melting pot. We have to start thinking past group identity, do we not? I agree with that. Uh, and I suppose the problem has been that Māori themselves think of themselves as an entity. And mm. yet even that has changed in my lifetime. I mean, I remember at the end of the war, staying with my uh, friends, uh, my cousin actually, uh, just across the bridge in Narawahia, and uh, the Maori uh, people there. And I remember seeing the ones waiting, women in particular, with their mokus uh, waiting outside the pub for their men folk uh, to come out and being intrigued by this. But they were very dark. Yes, that they were. There were still plenty of them that would have been three quarters, or possibly even some who were full Maori. But I mean, we're now in a world where there are no longer any full-blooded Maori. The dilution rate amongst Maori is extraordinary, and yet you see them all. Is quite a few of them popping up on television, who are no more Maori than my right foot. No. Uh, but they're claiming to be Maori, and they've, uh, uh, if they're of the female kind, uh, they've been putting a moko on their chin, and it's it's make believe stuff. Why is this happening? Because they perceive that there's a way of getting ahead of the rest of the mob by stressing your Maori ancestry, and so long as the Ardern Hipkins you know, favoritism, most favoured race uh, line was pushed. Uh, there was a spot for people like that. Well, I think the person, and I forget who it was, who said that the un uniformity or the unity of races in this country will be decided in the bedrooms of the nation yes. <laughs> said the right thing. I mean, in effect, we're going to quite soon reach a stage where there aren't divisions on the basis of race. They're not possible. Mm. And, uh, and I, of course. But that's in my more optimistic moments. And of course, we need to go back, Michael, to the real determinant, which is where you started, which is socioeconomic and welfare dependency. Mm. 
And that's where truly the haves and the have-nots, those with a opportunity of a future and those with a dire outlook is being made. And that's not dictated by one drop of blood. Mm. And I feel sad that when we were of the left, we cared about people who were poor and who were stuck there. And now we have this great tranche of New Zealand, many of whom are Maori, or who identify as Maori, and they're poor and they're stuck there. Yes, and more and more and more of them. Because mm. despite the special efforts to uh, are based on race, they just haven't been working. The number of uh, uh, in poverty has increased despite mm. being a Minister for Poverty Reduction, mm. uh, first introduced in 2017. And uh, the Māori health statistics are not improving, despite the fact that we've had Ora now for 20 years plus. Mm. And um, the efforts made by district health boards to try and help Māori in particular, they're just not working. And it comes back to, uh, in my view, um, a lack of self-discipline. Mm. There isn't something that governments can do to fix everything for people. It has to happen with the individuals themselves. And you would expect by now, and you would expect long ago, for the, the penny iwi, would have dropped. Yes, that the iwi elites, there would have been a leader emerge amongst the iwi with all the resources that they have, and said, we ourselves are going to take some responsibility for our people for whom we manage these assets on behalf of. And you would have a visionary like Aparananata, and you would say, education, education, education. We'll teach our kids ourselves because the state system is failing them in droves. Yes. Imagine it, what that could be, Michael. And I expected that to happen. I couldn't name you a Maori leader that, um, of these iwis, and you know they're sitting on billions. Yep. And I suspect, by the way, that they're in the background quite happy for all this agitation. Oh, absolutely. Because they're sitting, they're in charge of the, uh, uh, the redress money, uh, the tribal leaders, and um, uh, th they uh, see it as uh, the responsibility of the government to actually continue to um, uh, fund welfare, to fund everything. I mean, if they were obliged to show signs of having actually done something for their uh, members of their tribes, I think you'd find that things just might change a little Yes. Uh, they probably grizzle low at, at the next Waitangi. Yes. And we have this strange thing to end on. I Look, I'm actually quite optimistic for the future for some reason in 2024. But isn't it ironic? Because I think more and more people are seeing it, Michael. And I think David Seymour, I think it's a little misguided. I'm going to have him on and I'm going to let him have a good say about his treaty principles bill. But, but he has sparked a debate. And don't we find it ironic that we have these great protests in New Zealand about these poor kids in the Gaza Strip 
um, being uh, killed. Uh, nothing more innocent than the child and the outrage and yet we have such a poor understanding couldn't wouldn't know what river what sea anyone's talking about and yet just down the road we have babies being killed by their families yeah and the families creating a wall of silence silence no one held to account and not one protest on behalf of that little baby, mm. that little toddler, nothing. And I think New Zealanders are looking at that and we're starting to say, hang on, and starting to connect the dots. And I have to say, Michael, your insight and your experience is part of the key to us getting that understanding to go all the way back to Norm Kirk, all the way back to Sir Aparananatha, to understand uh, our history. What's that great George Orwell line? If you control history, you can control the future. And if you have power, you get to decide history. <laughs> Something of those words. Well, Putin, Stalin certainly believed the latter. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um i thank you for coming on this morning with us michael you are uh a wonderful person but it's great to share have you share uh your understanding your experience and your knowledge because well when you got to cabinet there would have been few up until that point who were historians academics and then you were sitting through what was early 70s 80s momentous new zealand politics absolutely momentous nothing's matched it since and you were witness to it which is a great thing a very fortunate thing is it not well i've written about it and yes. uh that's that's given me a lot of pleasure since then yes thank you for um, for interviewing that was dr michael bassett historian university lecturer waitangi tribunal member auckland councillor mp minister and writer all-round thoughtful person who has i would say using the word correctly a unique experience and understanding of New Zealand's recent history and able to reflect on it and his retirement from politics and explain it for us how it has come to pass so that we can better understand our present circumstance and the way forward you're on Radley Check Radio it's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and boy did we get some real talk Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. Do you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to? Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'd love to hear from you. So connect with us today.